Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are continuing our discussion of chapter 11, which is the operations of grace and free will. So last time we focused on the grace aspect and how free will is not really compatible with irresistible grace and it's you can't really enter into a genuine relationship if you're coerced to do so. And now we're going to talk about another aspect of free will that is believed by probably, I'd say, all, for the most part, official Christian religions other than Mormonism, which is debatable whether it's a Christian religion depending on who you talk to, but talking about creation ex nihilo, which is just, or creatio ex nihilo, which is just Latin for creation from nothing. So, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, back in, I guess, chapter two of the first book, as kind of one of the doctrines or ideas that was de- that were developed by what's called the patristic fathers of the early church, and it was introduced probably more than 200 years after the death of Christ. And so it's not necessarily taught in the Bible. There are a few passages that you can skew that way that a lot of people do. And a lot of people take the Genesis story to be claiming creation ex nihilo. But as scholars now agree, the worldview of the Hebrew writers and the early, what is called pre-exilic Judaism, did not view the cosmos as there being a nothing. They kind of viewed creation from chaos. Anyway, a lot of you already get that because that's the Mormon view. But we're talking about specifically now why creation ex nihilo is not compatible with free will. Now, last time we talked about two kind of different ways to understand creation ex nihilo. The first is called occasionalism, and this maintains that God creates everything in each moment of time. And we talked about last time how if the nature of something is to not exist, which if you believe God created everything else from nothing, he's the only thing that has the nature to exist, so everything else doesn't have the nature of existence inherently, and so he has to create it in every single moment anew, not just create it once. Although there is this other idea called conservationism, which holds that God creates substances along with their active and passive causal powers, meaning just basically what most people believe, I think, is that he creates something to be free. It's like, oh, you know, he created humans, and they can sustain themselves there, and it's not conflicting with free will because he just created someone with free will. That was easy. So it seems easy on its surface, but we're going to get into tonight why it doesn't necessarily work out that way. And also, I want to focus on a new movement within evangelical Christianity, which I think most Mormons would applaud, but it's called open theism. And the open part just refers to them believing that God can't infallibly know the future, because if he does, then as we discussed in book one, at some length, then free will cannot exist or at least not free will in the libertarian free will, meaning it's actual genuine free will. But open theists also maintain that creation ex nihilo is still a thing, but there are camps that are moving away from that, but there's a lot of hesitation there. 
So let me just read these couple sentences and then you can kind of go into it before we get into each of the two arguments that we're going to present on how it's not compatible. You say, it may appear that open theism emerges as the only viable alternative for a theology that seeks to maintain that one, we are free to choose whether to return God's love with our own love, and two, God is not directly culpable for evil events and choices. However, such a conclusion is hasty. There remains a problem. Conventional open theists affirm creation ex nihilo. Genuine human agency conflicts with the type of divine control entailed in the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. That is, it seems to me that those who adopt divine conservation and or concurrence, they overlook a central fact about the implications of the doctrine of creation out of nothing. Every human act of willing occurs only because God creates the form that the will has in each moment of choice. So, go ahead and orient us in this intro part. First of all, I want to make an observation about creation ex nihilum. It isn't scriptural. I've written several articles where I look at whether or not any of the scriptures that are cited for creation ex nihilo actually support the affirmation of creation ex nihilo. They don't. And in fact, many of them that are cited assume a pre-existing substance or strata or even a sentient type of an underlying reality to which God calls as the basis for the text. And so I believe it's well established the consensus position for the Hebrew scriptures is that they affirm a creation out of chaos, a pre-existing type of, if you will, seen as kind of a, a monster that has to be tamed in mythopoeic terms, or as an underlying chaotic type of matter, not substrate. Substrate is something that the Greeks came up with, but an underlying kind of chaotic matter that God had to contend with to organize. The New Testament language doesn't speak in terms of that kind of matter, but it speaks in terms of a substrate and assumes throughout that God is working with a pre-existing type of a reality. Often, for instance, in Second Peter, God is working with the primordial waters that are never created, relying on the account in Genesis 1. So the notion of creation ex nihilo is not a, a scriptural belief. In fact, it's a contra-scriptural belief. The second thing about creation ex nihilo is I don't see any way to make the idea even coherent. If God creates, he doesn't act, but an act is something done in time. And if there is nothing that exists except for God, and God isn't material in any way, then there really isn't a way to create ex nihilo. And let me make a, another observation. The Big Bang Theory, as it is presently configured, is not a view of creation out of nothing. Before the Big Bang, consensus view would be that there was what we could call an absolute chaos. There is uh, virtual particles that flash in and out of existence in a vacuum, and that's all that exists. There's no time in the vacuum because there aren't events that occur at regular intervals, but it nevertheless is a reality because it has a negative energy. A negative energy is a reality. I mean, it is really the description of perfect chaos. If we got into multiverse theories, then it's clear that there could be an, an infinite regress of multiverses. There are no scientific theories that would support the notion of creation ex nihilo, in my view. I've written articles rejecting William Lane Craig's arguments where he argues that the Big Bang Theory supports creation ex nihilo. But the bottom line is, as he's writing in a science that was left in the 1990s, 
I've also dealt with infinity arguments that William Lane Craig and others have used to support the notion of, of creation ex nihilo, and none of them are sound. I've dealt with all of these at some length in other publications, and for me at least, none of them are even remotely persuasive to suggest that everything is created out of nothing because an actual infinite would result in an actual infinite, for instance, is impossible. So that's kind of the background, on, as far as I'm concerned, on the intellectual lay of the field as we open and enter into this discussion. This argument, however, is a bit different. It is an argument that if there were such a thing as creation ex nihilo, then it would be impossible to have libertarian free will. Now, the key terminology for this kind of a discussion is what does it mean for something to exist on its own or to be self-sustaining? And the only kind of being that could be self-sustaining is a being who has existence or actuality as a property. That means it would have to exist of necessity uh, in some sense. Maybe not logical necessity, that, but there would have to be some kind of physical necessity, a property that this kind of being would have in order to remain in existence because existence is of the essence of its very being. There were a lot of arguments in scholastic theology, that, and some of them were resurrected in the 70s to the present, regarding arguments that God has existence as his essence. Needless to say, I'm not asserting that those kinds of arguments are true. I'm not asserting that any ontological argument works. In fact, I believe that they're all rather obviously both unsound and logically invalid. I think they beg the question in a big way. But having said that, if we're going to talk about what it would mean for there to be a necessarily existing being in sense of logical necessity, I don't think those arguments are valid. If we talk about something that has a nature to exist in, in the way that human beings have a nature to have a certain kind of DNA, that is of the essence of that kind of a being. And, you know, I'm using platonic terms here like essences and natures and so forth. But what kind of being is it that could cause something that didn't exist to exist? And the only kind of being that could do that would be one that already had some property of existence and that could cause it to exist. And here's the key to this argument. And that is that everything else would, would have to have as its nature non-existence because it depends on something else for its existence. And so it's not, for instance, if, if we adopt the notion of creation ex nihilo, it's not my nature to exist. I'm a contingent being. I exist only if something causes me to exist. And I believe that Melbrush was right about this, that if something doesn't cause me to exist from moment to moment, I think this is the logical outcome of creation ex nihilo, then I would cease to exist because I do not have a property of self-existence. I don't have a property of self-sustenance. Only a necessarily existing being could have those properties. And so it's impossible that I continue to exist from moment to moment because it's impossible that I have either a property of self-sustenance or a property of duration through time because that would be a property of self-existence. And so the other views that are generally adopted, conservation, concurrence, um, duration, those views simply fail to pay attention to what it is for something to have a property of self-sustenance. It would have to be something that has nature as its essence or existence as essential to what it is. Clearly, human beings on the traditional view don't have that kind of a property. So that's the starting point of the argument. All right, well, let me read this and then we'll kind of get into the first argument a bit. So you say, consider that one, if a person is created from nothing, then he is never the ultimate source or first cause of his or her choices. And if we assume that all persons are created from nothing, then it follows from our first assertion, which was 
that if a person is created from nothing, they can't be the ultimate source of their choices. And two, then three, no person is the ultimate cause or source of anything. This argument doesn't require any particular concept of God's acts in relation to humans or brings about their acts through cooperative grace. All requires is the notion of creatio ex nihilo. So the two arguments, I'll just kind of sum up what we're talking about and then we'll get into each of them. So the first argument is for the incompatibility of divine sustenance and free will. So this is talking about like we kind of have already, but why if God creates ex nihilo, it leads to humans not having free will. But this is more on the first view I talked about of the logical conclusion that, well, if everything besides God's nature or, you know, natural way of being is not to be, then God has to create it in every moment. That's called occasionalism, the view that in each moment God creates everything that exists in exactly the state that it is in each new moment. And remember last time we talked about what if God created the world for one minute at 10 minute intervals and left nothing in between for 10 minutes. But when he recreated you, he recreated you with all of the memories as if things had been occurring during, during those 10 minutes. Now, phenomenologically, you wouldn't be able to tell because you would exist exactly as you do. You would have all the memories that you do. And so he creates you and sustains you for one minute and then you're out of existence again. But he creates you again in 10 minutes and gives you all the memories and ages you and creates you in exactly the stage that you would be 10 minutes later if you had existed through those 10 minutes. So this little thought experiment is a way of looking at what it would mean for God to create us in each moment of our existence anew. We don't really make a choice and we don't have any causal power to anything. So I don't really bring anything about. Everything that exists is created precisely as it is, only because God has created it to be in precisely that state in that moment. So when I hit a nail, it's not that I'm hitting the nail that causes the nail to go onto the wood. It's God creating the nail at each new moment at the level that it is in the wood. So there's no causation or no secondary causation in nature, and the only real causality in the entire universe is God. There's also what this would lead to is a preconceived clock where everything is in harmony. So it's called preconceived harmony, where God creates everything as if it were in the next causal moment, as if it had been caused by something the moment before. When in fact, the only causal element in the entire universe is God creating everything in precisely the state that it is. So take that as the background. If that is what creation ex nihilo entails, and I argue that it is, then what follows is that we're never the cause of our choices. It's not me choosing, for instance, to go to the game. In each moment, God creates me as if I had made the choice. But the only causality in the choice is God's. He's choosing everything about me in every single moment, including the memory that I have of having made a choice, or he creates me in the state of thinking that I'm making a choice. But there's nothing about me that is making a choice. But libertarian free will requires that I'm the ultimate source, in some sense, of my own choices and my own acts. They have to be up to me. I have to have some causal power of my own. There are different views of libertarian free will, and the view that it sounds like I'm arguing that only agent-causal libertarianism would be acceptable, but it's even true if one accepts an event-causal libertarian view of free will as well. It works with every view, even on a soft determinist view of free will, or any other view of free will you have, if the prior causes don't have any effect on what's happening, and we don't have any input because of the makeup of our own being, 
even the deterministic views that attempt to be compatible with whatever deterministic view of free will they adopt, even these aren't consistent with free will. And the reason for that is that every act is essentially coerced to be what it is by just one mover. So the argument is a general argument. It works with every single view of, of free will that you adopt, even deterministic views, because there's no secondary causal agent in the entire universe. There's only God, and everything that, that happens is a result solely of his creative activity. So there can't be any free will. When I was reading this, I just thought it's basically like an author writing a fictional world, because it only exists at the will of, let's say, it's you. You can take the place of God in this analogy, and... You're thinking of a story to yourself, and you're thinking there's a guy, he's walking, he's having a life, and as long as you're maintaining that thought and making this thing exist in your mind, it is there. But nothing that happens is outside of your will for it, because it doesn't exist outside of you. It can't exist without you. It's only in your mind. When you're thinking of a story, and then you walk away, and then you come back, it didn't continue on its way and have its own will. No, it literally stopped, and then you can pick up where you left off and make it exist more. So it, it's kind of like, I don't know, I just call it an author of fiction type analogy. Well, the kind of analogy you're using is a good one because let's think of our thoughts as if though they were the created things and we as God in creating our thoughts, what our thoughts are totally up to us. They only exist as we create them in each moment to be what they are. But our thoughts independently from us as, as substances, if there are substances or agents, don't have free will. <laughs> okay. We have free will as agents, and, and our thoughts themselves are not agents. They're just the effects of the actions that we take. And I'd have to get into a mind-body problem analysis to really work that through. But as we look at the issue, what the kind of analogy you come up with is a good one, because we sustain our thoughts in existence. And when we cease to sustain them in existence, they simply cease to exist. All right, good. And so do you think there's anything else we need to say about this first argument, just kind of explaining the basics of it that we haven't gone into yet? Not really. I think that states the argument, and I think the force and generality of the argument needs to be appreciated. Now, these discussions about occasionalism and perdurance and concurrence and so forth are very large metaphysical discussions. But I think the result of you know what the logical implication of creation ex nihilo is is very clear once it is realized that only one kind of being could have existence as a property, and that being is a necessarily existing being. Not a logically necessary being, but one that has um, a simple nature, and it doesn't have to be a logically necessary nature. It just may be the nature of some things to exist. But that would be contrary to the traditional commitments to creation ex nihilo, because given creation ex nihilo, the world divides into two kinds of things. One thing necessarily exists, that's God, and everything else exists contingently or in reliance and dependence on God, and that's everything else. That's how the world cleaves. And once it's realized, I think that the only thing that really has the property of self-sustenance or self-sustaining existence or the ability to exist because it has existence as its nature is God. It follows that everything else just kind of is what it is because God's acting and creating it to be the way it is. Okay, and I guess now we can move on to the second argument, which is titled The Impossibility of God's Actualizing Agents with Free Will. And so and Jacob's going to take the lead on this, but just to introduce it, I guess. So even if the more popular conception of creation ex nihilo were true, which is people, you know, think like, well, God just created you, and then you had free will after that. He, he created a person with free will. You can do that. You can do anything out of nothing. But you're saying free will isn't something that can be created. Anyway, go ahead, Jacob, and 
Uh, let's start off with the paragraph where you say, a morally significant action is simply an action that is good or evil for an agent to perform or refrain from performing. Thus, a person steal has morally significant freedom if he steals a Mars bar from a 7-Eleven at T and the universe prior to T does not entail either that steel steals, maybe should have named that guy something else, <laughs> steel steals or does not steal a Mars bar at T. I was just being cute. All right. Uh, so what you're bringing up here, and these are a lot of the things that we explored in your first book, how free will is not compatible with uh, certain knowledge of things before. But how does creation ex nihilo affect this in such a way that you know God can't actualize us with having free will? So there are only two possibilities. This one assumes a possible world's analysis of free will in the way that Plantica did. And what this is, is it's called contracausal freedom. In order to be free, I have to be able to do what I do consistent with every cause in the world. And I also have to be able to refrain. And so we call this contracausal freedom is the kind of freedom that exists both with the causes that exist and the ability to refrain even with everything that exists. But if I have that kind of power, keep in mind, what does it mean for God then to create everything out of nothing if he's going to create me in a world that he chooses to create? So God has the ability to create me in a world where I steal an apple. He has the world to create me in a world where I don't steal that apple because when I steal the apple, I act freely. The problem is, is God can't bring about one of those worlds. He simply doesn't have power to. This is standard for anyone who understands Plantica's argument regarding the problem of evil. God is limited in power. He cannot create certain worlds. However, it has to be in my power in a world where I exist in order to be able to do certain acts. And that is, I have to, at the moment in that particular possible world, be able to both refrain and do the act in question to be free with respect to that act. The problem is this, given God's creative act, if he's created me in a world where I steal the apple, then in that world, it's not possible for me to refrain from stealing the apple because that requires a different possible world for me to exist in. God can't create both worlds because it's not within his power. And I don't have any more power to bring about that particular world. So if God creates the world where I steal, I don't have the ability to bring about the possible world where I don't steal because that's another particular possible world. And it was only up to God whether I existed in that world or not, not up to me. So which possible world I'm in, the world where I steal the apple or the world I don't steal the apple, is not up to me. It's solely up to God. God can't bring about a world, given this kind of semantics and logic, possible world logic, he can't create a world in which I have both the power to act and the power to refrain, because that would require me to have access to possible worlds that weren't created. It follows that yet God can't create us with free will if he creates us out of nothing. Now, it may be argued that this doesn't accurately capture the way that God's relation is to the world. This is more or less assuming a Molinist worldview as the model of creation. But I'm not making an argument that through middle knowledge, God knows which world he's creating. If simply adopting the possible worlds, and, and this is why this argument is strong and a very different argument than the argument regarding God and his ability to create every possible world that's logically possible. This is an argument that simply given possible world semantics, I can't be free because the way that it describes the worlds that we are in doesn't give us access 
from the actual world in which we are to another possible world that isn't actual. And so I can't act as if though I were in a non-actual world. Now, one could argue with the advisability of possible world semantics as a way of addressing these kinds of issues. I have issues with it. But one then is going to have to engage in the very large discussion of logical systems and whether or not, given a logical system, one has a a better explanation or not. And choosing between logical systems isn't easy. Even open theists describe the world in a contra-causally way. And many of them do it in terms of possible world semantics. A possible world semantic is simply this. God can create a possible world. It's possible that I'm in a world where I steal an apple. It's possible that I'm in a world where I don't steal the apple. But which of those possible worlds is going to be actual should be up to me and not up to something else. It simply isn't up to me and can't be up to me. And it's not up to God either. What follows is that the reason that I do things is completely out of both my control and God's control. And what I choose to do is simply a matter of sheer randomness. But free will can't be a matter of sheer randomness. Now, there is an argument, it's a related argument that's often made by those who want to attack libertarian free will, that if the prior world up to this, if you take all the causes in the prior world up to this moment, all my thoughts and all my character and everything about me, and I choose to steal the apple, now rerun the world to the same moment with everything about me and in that world, I don't choose to steal the apple. In order to be free under a libertarian view, I have to be able to be able to do both, given everything that's existed in the world up to this moment, and they would argue that that makes my decision contrary. And my response to that is, no, there's a distinction between the two worlds, and the distinction is the morphology or framing of my will. The difference is which will I choose to be my will. <laughs> and so. It's not a matter of arbitrary existence running the world up to that time or not. I'm responsible for the choices that I make up at that point, and both are genuinely open to me. That's what it means to be truly creative, and that's why I believe that at base, a libertarian view is best explained as an agent-causal view, and I believe that libertarianism entails that agents are a certain kind of substance or in a different kind of language. We are a different kind of being than a rock or a thing that is totally determined by causal determinations prior to the time that we we get to a certain point. We are a being that is creative. Human beings are creative beings. We have inherent within our nature. If we mature to a certain level and our brains have certain capacities, which are inherent in the kind of species that we are, to be able to choose creatively. And by creativity, I mean that we choose in a way that is a new addition to the world at that moment in time by the way we synthesize everything up to that point of time, and we have the power to choose one way or another. Now, this discussion of what the will actually looks like is a large discussion. I've had that discussion in the first volume. I continue that discussion in the second volume, and I give examples in each volume of what it means to be choosing at a particular point in time. So I'm not going to enlarge on that. But what this argument says is that if God is creating me out of nothing and he's choosing among logically possible worlds, whether he can know their future or not beyond that point, I can't be free in that world because what I do is not up to me in that world. Ironically, it's not up to God either. Let me pop in here for a second. Most people thinking about creation ex nihilo and all that aren't thinking about possible worlds or anything. They're just thinking about creation as in like, well... If you can create, and you have infinite power, and you can create anything, why is it not possible to create a self-sustaining being that is self-sustaining and has free will? 
Because if you can create from nothing, you should seemingly be able to create anything that you could possibly think of. Because then you're creating an uncreated thing, which is logically impossible. The only being that can have nature is... What's uncreated about it? You can still create it. I'm not saying that you create an uncreated thing. I'm saying it's created things. Because its nature is to not exist of necessity. It can't exist of necessity or you wouldn't have to create it. It would already exist. Well, can't you just create it? So after the moment of creation... What you're saying is, I create something that doesn't have a property of self-existence, and I confer upon it a property of self-existence. I create it to have self-existence. It didn't have self-existence prior to being created, but now it does. I'm just saying what the arguments I've heard. I agree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. No, no, and it's good to play devil's advocate. And the reason you can't give a property of self-existence to something that is created is something that is created has a property of not having the property of self-existence by definition. I mean, it follows from the fact that it's created that it doesn't have this property. Now, could I could I create it and say, look, I'm going to create you so that you continue to go and continue to exist because I have the property of existence and I'm conferring on you a property that only I have, and that is the property of self-existence. Well, the answer is if I'm dependent on why for its beginning to exist and it's dependent on why for its existence, and it follows that it doesn't have the very property you're talking about. So let's take an example. Let's say that if you have something that is holding something else in existence for a moment, okay? What would it be for something to remain in existence? It would mean that it has a property of self-sustenance. But the only kind of thing that could have a property of self-sustenance is something that has a property of self-existence. Nothing can have a property of self-existence that has the property of depending on something else for its existence. If I've created for a first moment, then I don't have existence as my nature, because otherwise I would then exist. The only thing that could then exist would be something that depends on something else to come into existence and therefore doesn't have a property of either existence as its nature or self-existence because its existence doesn't depend solely on what it is. It depends on God. So it can't have a property of self-existence. The very concept is self-contradictory. It's inherently incoherent. So in the first book, you talked about a Mormon idea of divine concurrence, which you explained kind of in relation to an already existing intelligence or raw material or chaos even of the universe, but it still requires God sustaining it in each moment, which sounds a little bit like occasionalism. So you compare and contrast those two and see why you would go with that and why that is stronger than occasionalism, I guess, or where, how it avoids the problems. The view that I expressed was in the chapter, I believe, on omnipotence and what God can bring about. And what I explained was, we have this notion of general concurrence that we talked about last week. You've got the mountain lion jumping on the back of the deer because it's hungry. The mountain lion drives its energy from the meat of the deer. The deer drives its energy from the grass that it eats. The grass derives its energy from a process of photosynthesis that synthesizes the power and energy of the sun, and the sun is the source of all power and life in the solar system, well, specifically on Earth, because we don't think there's life anywhere else. The concurrence is like that. All of the power to do something derives from God, but it's not the only power that can be exercised. So the way I put it there is that in order to have power to do anything at all, I have to have energy to do it, and the energy derives from God. But the action of jumping on the back of the deer is something that's peculiar to the mountain lion. 
God doesn't create the energy of the deer for the particular purpose of jumping on the back of the mountain lion. The mountain lion uses the energy that way. And so by analogy, it's kind of up to the mountain lion how that energy gets expended. Another analogy would be what I call a two-switch analogy. Okay, Say that God would like me to do a certain act. So let's say he wants me to go to church, just supposing. I have the capacity to go to church, but whether I go to church is not solely up to God. I have the, the life that I do. I have the energy that I do ultimately because it drives as God as the source of all energy in the universe. But how I direct that energy is dependent on my free choice to go to church. To get me to go to church requires two switches. God has to turn the switch for his energy to be expended, and I have to turn the switch as to how that energy is in fact expended. And so this is a notion of both general divine concurrence, and there is no notion of specific concurrence in what I presented. Molinists adopt a version of specific concurrence. God only creates those things and gives concurring energy to those things that he chooses to have occur in the world that he's creating. So if he wants you to be saved, he gives you both a grace that will save you and a concurring energy that concurs with your choice to move the will to accept the grace on Molinism. Okay? That's a, a very specific direction of God's energy to create an effect because he has to concur in the very act that I do. On the view that I presented, there's a general concurrence, but the specific concurrence is up to the kinds of nature that a thing is. So, for instance, H2O. God can create in a sense that he organizes, uh, gives the energy to the constituents that already exist to carry out their activities, and he can withdraw it. However, whether or not atoms of oxygen and hydrogen have the particular properties they do to create water are based upon the eternal features of the law of what it is to be two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. So the fact that there is water depends upon two things, both God's general concurrence that water be created because he's given the energy for that to occur, and the specific direction of that energy because it's their nature always to create water when they're in a, a molecular bonding relationship. So the fact that they act is that with the particular properties that they do is not up to God, given the Mormon view of creation. That they have the ability to do so is up to God. And here's the thing. God could withdraw order from the universe. So, for instance, if he doesn't give his general concurring power, the particular secondary direction of the power by the particular essences of the universe, like atoms, they couldn't have a power without God's concurring power. And so God has a choice. He could withdraw the power from us to do anything, but if he does, we would tend toward disorganization. And it's the same thing with the universe. His choice is to organize a world that then expresses the natural properties that each of the you know, natural constituents has, or he can have chaos. So if he gives the energy and the essences direct the energy the way that their natures dictate in a deterministic universe, or we direct the energy the way that we freely choose as free agents, depends upon God sustaining us from moment to moment. We wouldn't have this ability without what I'll call his organizing cooperation. God could withdraw his organizing cooperation, and what he gets are things that simply fall apart from that moment on um, in the way that entropy would dictate. <laughs> okay, So entropy is a tendency toward greater disorder, and in fact it operates throughout the universe. Things get directed to particular ends by the kinds of things that are in the universe. So 
without God's general concurrence, the universe falls into chaos. Individual agents like ourselves would tend to disintegrate so that our individuality essentially wouldn't be able to be expressed. Or he can have a world of the type that he actually has because in Mormonism, he doesn't create the ultimate constituents and the properties of the constituents aren't created to be the kind of thing they are either. So he has a choice between the kind of world that we actually have, that has natural substances have the kinds of secondary causal powers that they actually have, or he has chaos. He's decided to have a world, as we can see, that's ordered, and the individual substances direct the way that that energy is expended. If you're more interested in a more specific kind of statement of the argument, it's appended to the podcast so that you can take a look at it. It's what I published. And you can walk through it premise to premise to see that it is in a logically valid form and given a certain logical language, the language of possible worlds and possible world semantics, it's both logically valid and sound because you can't deny it. One could simply reject possible world semantics as an effective way of describing and dealing with the world, but that's a big move. So in summation, you say that it seems to me then any sound theological position must provide a basis for at least two truths. Number one, God leaves us free to say no to his loving persuasion to enter into a relationship with him. And number two, God is not indictable for our own morally evil choices. Well stated. All right, uh, so wrapping things up here, we see that those two arguments obviously show that the views of both divine substance and God-actualizing agents with free will do not actually coincide with having free will. Uh, is there anything else here at the end that you want to, to wrap things up with? It's simply that both arguments entail one thing, and that is that in a world where God creates ex nihilo, it essentially entails that God is acting through an external coercion to get the world that he wants. And on any view of free will that we adopt, libertarian and deterministic free will, external coercion is simply incompatible with the kind of moral accountability, the kind of free choices that make us the human kind of beings that we are, and the most viable things about us, the ability to freely choose to love or to not love. These kind of things that are, are really of the essence, it seems to me, to any Christian theology, are negated by the notion of, of creation ex nihilo. That's a really startling and broad conclusion of course, that people in the tradition, I don't know so much that they've resisted as they really haven't confronted. The other thing I would say is that if we're looking at a world of creation out of nothing, we have to ask, what is the purpose to accomplish? And it seems that if God's purpose is to persuade us to be like he is and individuals who have an essential property of self-sustenance and an independent power to make free choices are the only kinds of beings that could possibly be like God is in any universe. So if the notion of theosis is, is accurate, where we can become the kind of being that God is, we have to reject the notion of creation out of nothing as well. If God wants peers and he's not satisfied with pawns, if God wants to have a relationship with us to bring us to be everything that he is as a co-creator and to share fully in his glory, then Joseph Smith's vision of the peer relationship between God and humans is really the only option in the books as far as I'm concerned. All right, and I'm in agreement there. there there's not another way to make sense logically, as far as I can tell. That's how I see it. All right, sounds good. We'll end there and continue with the last chapter next time.
Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.